All right, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 44. Have you ever been, oh, the, the lone usher is coming down the aisle with Bibles. If you don't have one, raise up your hand and, and Bob will get one to you. Have you ever been driving down the highway? You're driving down the highway, you're just, it's warm out, maybe you have the windows down, the music's up, it's, it's a good time. You, you're jamming out, everything's right in the world, and then all of a sudden, whew, you pass by a police officer, right on the left, right like in the median, you didn't even notice them, and maybe you're going a little too fast, or maybe you were looking at your phone. Or maybe you weren't doing anything at all, but I don't know about you, but immediately what I do, whether I was doing something wrong or not, is my eyes go right up to the rearview mirror. And I'm watching. And I'm like, I'm going. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting further, a little further, almost in the clear. Oh, the lights turn on. And you know they're not going for the other guy next to you. You just know they're coming for you. And you have to pull over. Well, when we get into our passage here tonight, the sons of Israel have a, a similar situation, albeit very much worse. As we spend time in Genesis 44 tonight, we're going to be journeying with these brothers as they try to leave Egypt, and also the guilt of what they've done to their brother Joseph behind them, only to find that they are unable to do that. We will see that we too cannot escape our guilt, and that their only hope and ours is that there is a surety, someone who stands in the gap for their souls. So, Genesis chapter 44, starting in verse 1. And he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. So what we have here is Joseph's brothers still don't know that they've been uh, in front of their brother Joseph. Judah and the rest of them, uh, they are looking to get out of Egypt. They've been uneasy about being in Egypt since they were first sent by their father because of this famine. Weeks ago, Mike brought up that possibly one of uh, the factor of their uneasiness was that the Ishmaelite traders that they sold Joseph to was sent to Egypt. So Egypt is a reminder to them of all that they've done wrong to their brother. It's a reminder of this 
guilt. And Egypt has not been very kind to them this whole time. They have reason to be uneasy because they show up. They're just there. They've got money. They're ready. They're like going to the supermarket. Imagine if you went to the supermarket and all of a sudden a police officer, man, I'm picking on police officers tonight. We appreciate our police officers. But imagine all of a sudden you're stopped and you're questioned. It would, you're not expecting to be questioned. And not only were they questioned harshly, they were accused of being spies. Not only were they accused of being spies, they were sent into prison. Not only were they sent into prison, but one of their brothers had to stay in prison until they proved that they weren't spies, which is a really hard thing to do, by the way. Prove that you're not a spy, but this ruler in Egypt gave them a way to prove that they were not a spy. They had to bring their youngest brother. Why that would prove you're not a spy, I don't know but that was their task. Then they had to go home and convince their dad to send their brother, which he wouldn't. They had to get back to a position where they had no more food. By the way, Simeon's still in prison. And so they have to ask their dad again. Judah comes and he says, I will be a surety for the boy's life. I'll bear the guilt if I don't bring him. And so what do they do? They go back. Well, They go back, but they also bring double money because also when they left Egypt, the money that they paid for the grain actually was back in their sacks. And all of a sudden, oh my goodness, they're going to think we stole the grain. And so they bring double money. They're like, no, 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 we didn't. We didn't steal it. We brought more money. I don't know what happened. They're freaked out. All the while, why are they freaked out? Well, Genesis 42, verse 1. Nope, not Genesis 42, verse 42, verse 21. And it says, as they're being questioned, as they're by Joseph, they say, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And also in verse 28 of that chapter. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us. They recognize that all their trouble in Egypt is as a result of what they had done to their brother. Proverbs 28, 1 says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked are always looking over their shoulders. When you've got a guilty conscience, it's weighing on you day and night. And that's the situation that these brothers have been in for years. And so they, they get to Egypt, but then to their surprise, instead of being punished, instead of being further questioned, they're brought to Joseph's house. They think that they're being entrapped, that Joseph is after, his, after their donkeys, which is really funny. They're like, he wants to make us his slaves and take our donkeys which, by the way, they left with. No, Joseph isn't after their donkeys. But instead of being questioned, instead of being harassed, instead of being put back into prison by this ruler 
in Egypt, they're celebrated. They're invited to dine with this ruler that they do not yet know is their brother. He feasts with them. He blesses them. He heaps blessings upon them, even though they had scorned him, sold him into slavery, wanted to kill him. He blesses them, but not only that, he puts them to a bit of a test. Because as they're feasting, the, the last verse in, verse in chapter 23, it says, Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. What does Joseph do? He blesses the youngest for no apparent reason. He heaps this blessing in front of them, and he wants to see what his brothers are going to do. Because Joseph was blessed unmeritoriously for no reason. His father loved him and blessed him. And when Joseph was blessed, his brothers were jealous. So what's going to happen now when Benjamin is blessed? Well, it says that they, they were merry with him. There, there seems to be no sign of covetousness, no sign of jealousy. They're just rejoicing. They're thankful that they're getting food. They're thankful that Simeon's back. They're thankful that things are going well. And they wake up in the morning. Whew, we get to go home. That's a load off of our minds. And they start riding off with their donkeys, with their food. Their bellies are fed. They're patting each other on the back. See, nothing would happen. Everything's fine. We were overreacting. Except then Joseph's servant comes and stops them. Verse 4, when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servant is, it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So, they think they're about, they think they're free and clear, they're heading home, and now all of a sudden, the lights come on. They're stopped, not just yet. And ultimately, they're found out. Not because they had stolen the cup, but because of what they had done to their brother Joseph. Numbers 32. Verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And if it were not for Jesus, if it were not for the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that we find in him, we would constantly be bearing the guilt of our sins. And even still, there are consequences to our actions. And when we try to cover our sin, it never works. Your sin always finds itself out. You either have the opportunity to out yourself through humility and repentance or God in his grace will allow you to be found out. So the option is yours. But ultimately, these brothers, they were found out. They were stopped. And they're so confident that they didn't commit any wrong, which in this instance about the silver cup, they hadn't. They're all self-assured, each one of them, all the 11 brothers. You do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And so... Then the steward says to them, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall all be blameless. So the steward doesn't say exactly what the brothers had said. They said, Let the person whom the cup is found with die, and the rest of us will be your slaves. The steward says, No, all right, but... According to your word, instead what we're going to do is whoever's found with it, that person is going to be the slave, and everybody else gets off scot-free. And this is all a part of Joseph's plan, and ultimately the Lord's plan, and how he is trying to bring about uh, the repentance of these brothers. Trying to, he's, he's putting them between a rock and a hard place. And ultimately, we're going to see what comes out. Has there been change? Has there been repentance? Is there chance for restoration between Joseph and his brothers? And so what the brothers do is the only thing they can do, which is comply, because I'm sure the steward isn't by himself. Verse 11, then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. So each sack is open. Reuben, nothing. Simeon, nothing. Levi, nothing. Judah, nothing. I don't know the rest of them in order. Okay? Before you thought I had it all together. Nope. I got the first four. But one by one, all ten, and then coming to the eleventh. And you can imagine that they're like, See, we told you, and the 11th sack is open, Benjamin's sack, and there's the cup. Benjamin, the youngest son of Israel, the one who Israel said, if he doesn't come back, I'm going to die. He argued with his sons because he just had a feeling that something was going to happen to his youngest son, Benjamin. His sons have, had, up until this point, not been very faithful in taking care of one another. Joseph has been torn to pieces in Israel's sight, his, his eyes. 
Simeon was left in prison in Egypt, and here they are asking to bring another son? Absolutely not. And so here, Benjamin, the one son who they were all hoping didn't have it, did have it. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the, uh, to the city. And what we see here is that there's a bit of a change of heart. Something has been happening over these years as they've been musing and thinking about what they've done to their brother, especially since they've gone to Egypt, especially as they've encountered these struggles. It's caused them to reflect. They've been feeling guilty. They've been having anguish over what they had done. Didn't we hear his pleads and we ignored him? All of this is coming upon us. All this distress is coming upon us because what we've done to him. And now they see their youngest brother. And he is set to be a slave in Egypt and they're going to have to go home without him. And it causes them deep anguish and grief. They tear the clothes. The last time we see them tearing clothes was in Genesis 37 when they stripped the multicolored robe off of Joseph and threw him in a pit. They tore the clothes off of him, threw him in a pit, dipped the clothes in blood, and presented it to their father as if he was torn to pieces by a beast. And now we see them tearing their own clothes. But it's interesting because as they were tearing the clothes off of Joseph, they tell their father, they allow their father to believe this story that he was torn to pieces by a beast. But how true that actually was. There's an interesting image that's playing out through Genesis and through the story of Joseph. The first question that man ever asked God was by Cain. And his question was this, am I my brother's keeper? The reason why he asks that is because God goes to Cain and he says, where is your brother? Earlier, God had spoken to Cain because Cain was downcast. He was upset because his offering was not accepted by God, but Abel's was. And God said to Cain to be watchful, to pay attention. That sin was crouching at his door, and its desire, desire was to devour him. If he, if, he, if he didn't rule over this temptation, Cain was going to be devoured like an animal would devour its prey. And so we see that, that this sin is crouching at the door of Cain, and he doesn't rule over it. And what happens? Then we see that Cain is the predator. He's the one who becomes the beast, and he kills his brother. And likewise, we see this very similar picture between Joseph and his brothers because Joseph had favor 
with his father, like Abel had favor with God. And when the brothers saw Joseph and saw the favor that was bestowed upon him, instead of being, rejoicing with him or learning from him, they wanted to kill him. They, they saw him come and they say, see this dreamer, we should kill him. Then what would come of his dreams? And what do they do? They attack him. They pull off the garment. They throw him in the pit. And then they essentially say to their father, look, a beast has torn him to pieces. And that's exactly what happened. They, sin turns humanity into beasts. We see it day in and day out. We see it even in our own lives as we tear at one another. As we use our words like daggers to stab and slice one another. The, the sinful inclinations in our own heart devouring not only us, but those around us. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph and his brothers. His brothers had reverted to beasts. God had breathed the breath of life into humanity, but as we sin, we revert back to being more earthly than heavenly. But this time, they're not tearing at their brother Benjamin. They're not offering him up as a sacrifice, as a scapegoat. Instead, they're tearing their own clothes because Benjamin's plight is their plight. Benjamin's pain is their pain. And they don't, they don't just offer him up and leave and run, even though Egypt has been dreadfully bad to them. Because the steward had expressly said, whoever the cup is found with, that one will be the slave and the rest of you can go. We already see that there's a change of disposition in these brothers. They don't run. They go back with Benjamin. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? So right now we see that Joseph is still playing the part of this Egyptian dignitary. Pharaoh, uh, Joseph isn't a magician. He's a man of God. But he's allowing them to believe what they would believe about somebody in his position. And so, verse 16, Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now it's interesting because we see that Judah recognizes this as God's providence. He doesn't try to give a defense. He doesn't try to get out of it. He, sums, he somehow sees this. He recognizes it, that it's from the Lord and that it is a just, uh, a just payment for what they had done to Joseph. 
Now, he doesn't know that Joseph's right in front of him, but he does recognize that God has exposed their iniquity and they are being punished for what they had done to Joseph. And in Hebrew narrative, this is an important uh, thing to point out. In Hebrew narrative, the way that you can tell what's important or what the point of a story is, is typically through whoever gives the speeches, whoever's uh, offering the most dialogue. And so in chapter 44, we see that Judah speaks the most, and we're going to get into his response to Pharaoh and the application and implications it has for us tonight. Verse 17, Joseph responds to Judah, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Joseph is presenting them this test of sorts. What's going to happen when it's their lives that are on the line? You can go, just leave the boy. He's the one who had the cup anyway. You guys didn't do anything wrong. And, and you can imagine the turmoil inside of themselves, them starting to ask, well, did he really steal it? I mean, I didn't steal anything. Why should I have to stay here for a wrong that I didn't commit? Yet they're there. Yet they're presenting themselves alongside their brother. And it's interesting because Cain, all those years before, asked God, am I my brother's keeper? And if you read the book of Genesis and the whole Bible, the answer that God gives is very clear. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. You're not just responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for those who are around you. And we see that Judah understands this. Verse 18, then Judah came near to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. And so Judah is about to try and make his case to release Benjamin. And it's interesting how he chooses to do this. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, he starts recounting the events that have transpired. And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young, his brother, oh wait, we have, uh, yeah, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. 
And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And what we see here is that Judah's motivation for his love for his brother derives from his love for his father. And how fitting that is. Because When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said that, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. See, love for God and love for people are tied together. If you love God, it will result in a love for people. But if you do not love people, it proves that truly you do not love God. The book of 1 John is all about that subject over and over again. How do you love God? You love people. How do you love people? By loving God. And it's this beautiful cycle when we enter into it. And so we see Judah's heart. He's concerned for his father. If he doesn't come home with Benjamin, it's his father's life at stake. And so because he loves his father, he will do whatever he can to send home his brother. And that reminds us of the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves humanity, and because he loves humanity, he sent Jesus. Jesus went to earth, to the cross, because of his love for the Father and because of the Father's love for us. It's so interesting, Uh, Rich read during our prayer time from the parable of the lost sheep. And it shows the love and care of God that he would go after sinful people like us. Jesus said that he had expressly come to seek and to save that which was lost That's us. God's desire is for his people. He desires to bring people back to himself and to bring us near because that was always our intended place. To be living in the light of God, to be working in partnership with God because we have been made in the image and likeness of God to reflect his goodness and his glory. 
And so the motivation of Judah is a reflection of the motivation of Jesus in his mission to save us. Verse 30, now therefore, Judah continues, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. What a picture we have of the heart of Christ. Here's Judah, who God is exalting to first place in leadership of the family. Something has shifted in Judah's perspective because Judah was the one who initially told the brothers, eh, we shouldn't kill him. We should at least get some money for it. Why don't we sell Joseph as a slave? And now Judah is the one who's offering himself as a slave so that his brother could go free. Judah doesn't know whether or not Benjamin is guilty. Judah, does, Judah just experienced Benjamin being blessed five times over the rest of them. And here Benjamin is, and the cup is in his sack, and the jealousy, the covetousness could rise up, but something has changed. Judah loves his father, and because he loves his father, he loves his brother, and he has given himself as a surety for his brother. He has made this covenant with his father that it's my life on the line. Benjamin's coming home, and what a beautiful picture we have of Jesus in that, who in eternity past had made a covenant with his father that he would be a surety for us. Father, I'm bringing them home. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 from the ESV version says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God, in eternity past, already had a plan set in motion to save us even before the world's were. I think about that Hillsong song that says, I was found before I was lost. And the reason for that is because we have a surety for our soul. Jesus had already promised himself 
He was already the the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He had already accomplished our salvation and our rescue before we were caught in the trap of sin and death. And so Judah had already decided beforehand that Benjamin was coming home and he would do everything in his power to see that through, even if it meant his own life being laid down. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus came and suffered with us. He came to bear our sin and shame. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He came to be united with us. And when he went to the cross, he took on all our sin and shame upon himself so that we could receive his righteousness as a free gift. He was a surety for us. He took the punishment from us so that we could go free. Moving on in Hebrews, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, which is exactly what Jesus did. He came to reveal the Father's heart to us. He came to declare who God the Father was. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am, I, here am I, and the children whom God has given me. Jesus is, he's a surety for us, and then we are his inheritance. There's this beautiful picture where Jesus is laying down his life for his people so that they could be set free and then God looking at Jesus and the beautiful sacrifice that he makes rewards his son with us being his inheritance. He gives himself for us and then we are given right back to him. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus came to destroy the powers of death by taking death on himself so that we could be set free from the fear of death just like Judah offers himself to be the slave that Benjamin was supposed to be. And he did that out of love, not only for his brother, but for his father. 
And so in our passage tonight, we see that ultimately Judah is a picture for us, not only of someone who needs a surety for his own soul, forgiveness, pardon, redemption, but he's also a shadow of that surety which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Likewise, we see Judah and we're reminded of Jesus. And we, like Judah and his brothers, are unable to clear our own guilt. We're unable to cover it. Ultimately, it always crops back up. Ultimately, we're always looking over our shoulder, looking in the rearview mirror, knowing that something's coming for us. We can't outrun it. And before Jesus, that's the only thing we had. Who through all their lifetime were in bondage to the fear of death. Each and every one of us know it's coming. There will be a day when you breathe your last. And either that will be a terrifying moment or it will be a freeing moment. And it depends on if you have a surety for your soul. Because if Jesus has made himself a surety for your soul, then your judgment, your punishment has already been paid and the only thing left for you is grace. And so the question that I have for all of us tonight is, do you have that surety for your soul? There might be some of us, I don't know, some of us might be new. You might not have heard the gospel Well, the gospel is this, that God loves you. He created you to be in relationship with him, but sin has separated us from him. But God had a plan to restore us by sending his son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sins so that we could freely receive this gift of his grace and be restored into relationship with him if you put your faith and trust in him. And if you have not, I would encourage you to do that tonight. You don't have to keep looking over your shoulder. You can know that you've been set free. You can know that God looks at you because of what Jesus has done and says, not guilty. But for many of us, we have already come into that relationship. In which case I would say, Christian, Why are you so downcast? Why are you allowing the enemy to remind you of your sin and wrongdoings as if they haven't been forgiven in Christ, as if you haven't been set free? Now, it's important that we're convicted of our sin as long as that draws us back to God. But Christian, if you're, you're still looking over your shoulder, waiting for the hammer to fall on you, waiting for the lightning bolt, I know it's too good to be true. I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. I, I haven't done enough. God, how could you bless me like you've blessed me? The enemy comes and he lies as if everything's going to be ripped from you eventually because, well, it's too good to be true. Forgiveness is too good to be true. Christian, God's mercy and grace is so good that it has to be true. Has to be true. It is true. It is a goodness that is self-sufficient. God's goodness 
is good. And to say that it's too good to be true is to deny its very goodness. He is good. He is merciful. And because of that, he's proved it on the cross with Jesus Christ. He's demonstrated his love for you. Jesus has made himself a surety for your sin. You are held fast. Like it says elsewhere in Hebrews, we have this anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. That anchor is Christ, and he is tethering you to the love and grace of God, and he will not let you go. Benjamin didn't necessarily know it, but Judah was making sure Benjamin was coming home. And before you knew you were lost, Jesus had already found you because he is a surety for our soul. And in that we can take comfort. And in that we can draw near to God. And in that we can recognize the love of the Father and then be poured into by the love of the Father and it results in our love for one another. We don't have to be jealous of one another because we are sure of our love from the Father and to the Father. And that results in an overflowing love toward one another, both our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and also, as Jesus has commanded us, our enemies. And ultimately, this world will know who Jesus is by our love for one another. And so, allow the surety of Jesus to be a comfort to your soul, to tether you to the love of God, to pull you in knowing that you're secure in him so that you can be filled up to overflowing with the love of God so that you can show this world truly who God is as we all look full into the face of Jesus Christ. They look at us, they see Jesus. They, we point them to Jesus, they see Jesus, they see the Father. And we are restored because Jesus is a surety for our soul, amen? So why don't, we, uh, why don't you stand with me? We're going to close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this grand story of redemption that even before we distanced ourselves from you, you had already planned for our restoration. We thank you that you've known us before we were even created. And we don't quite understand how that works. And we marvel at your grandeur and your majesty. But we are thankful. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, who has made himself a surety for our soul, that he has pledged himself for us, that he has laid his own life down so that we could be set free. We thank you that he has fulfilled what he said of himself, that of those that you have given to him, he has lost none. We thank you that you are holding on to us. We thank you that you have never let us go. And we pray that that truth would then empower us to love and live like you. That we would, because we have been freely given, that we would freely give that we would take your love and lavish it on each other, 
even and especially when we don't deserve it. We pray that we would be quick to forgive, patient when wronged, and loving and kind when those of us around, around us are not loving and kind to us. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your church where we have this opportunity to practice. And we pray that we would be patient with each other as we're still learning. We ask that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and that by your Spirit, as we look to Jesus, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your Son, to your glory, because all things are of you and for you. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all.